0: Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or even an online store, it is all possible with a Squarespace website. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter code HISTORY to get 10% off your first purchase. I'm Matt. I'm Noel. I'm Ben. And we are Stuff They Don't Want You To Know. Each week, we cover the latest and strangest in fringe science, government cover-ups, allegations of the paranormal, and more. New episodes come out every Friday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Okay, Tracy, I have to start with a confession, <laughs> which is how I became interested in today's topic. So I saw this story online saying that uh, this woman was the patron saint of cats. As people know I'm an animal person, I have a handful of kitties of my own. Don't get excited, cat people. There are absolutely zero kitties in this story. Uh, we will touch on that patronage thing about why she's associated with cats at the end. Uh, but we're gonna talk today about Saint Gertrude of Nivelle. And she is sometimes confused with Saint Gertrude the Great because the two are often depicted similarly in addition to having the same name. But they lived 600 years apart. They are not the same person at all. So if you just do a Google search for Saint Gertrude, you will get a mix of the two. Do not be confused. We are talking about the one from the 7th century. Uh, Our Gertrude, who was described as fair of face, but more beautiful of mind, announced her religious calling at a very early age. And we're going to talk about that and her life story as it unfolded, as well as her importance in the grander political scheme of Europe in medieval
1: times. Gertrude was the daughter of Pepin I of Landon, who was the mayor of the palace of King Dagobert. She was born around 626, although some accounts list different adjacent years. And she was born in what's now southern Belgium. At the time of her birth, this was part of the Austrasian Frank- Frankish kingdom, and her mother was Ida of Aquitaine. So sometimes you'll also see this written as Ita, or Itta with an E at the end. Ida was the daughter of Bishop Arnold of Metz, and Gertrude also had an older sister called Bega. Gertrude's family
0: line in her biography is described as being lofty in nature uh, and known to all of Europe to such a degree that rehashing this family line and its importance would simply be a waste of time for the writer and the reader. But it isn't really specified beyond that. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the importance of her family to the political landscape a little bit later, though.
1: It always cracks me up when really old documents are like, this is completely obvious to everyone, and so we're not (laughs) going to explain it further. But by now, it's not obvious anymore, so we don't know. The story of her young childhood is also lost. In her Vita Sanctae, or her saint's biography, it picks up when she was already 10. And this is the point where the story of her life as a religious figure really begins. So it makes sense that in a narrative about the life of a saint, it would pick up at 10 and not... When she was born.
0: And at that point in time, her father hosted a banquet. And this banquet was attended by the king and a number of other nobles. So obviously, like they were important enough that they could ask the king over and he would show up. Uh, and in the course of this feast, Gertrude was dr- brought before the king and asked if she would marry the son of the Duke of Austrasia. And the Duke in question had asked permission of the king to make this request that his son and Pepin's daughter be betrothed, because this would be a very strong political alliance.
1: The young Gertrude, currently age 10, was extremely clear in her reply. She would not marry the man in question, or any other man for that matter. She had already decided to pursue a religious life and to become a bride of Christ. So the king and other guests were really taken aback at this resolve coming from a 10-year-old and you know, that she was being so direct, considering that she was such a young girl. Yeah, she was apparently very, very
0: clear. Nobody walked away from that with any question marks about maybe she'll change her mind. And allegedly the matter dropped there and Gertrude was never pressured to marry thereafter. Uh, in a book called Sainted Women of the Dark Ages, though, the authors suggest that the close connection with the crown and the politics uh, of her family may have actually been what drove Gertrude to her religious calling and that she was purposely choosing celibacy as a way to escape ever having to enter into an essentially political marriage. Uh, some historians also believe that in all likelihood, she eventually would have been encouraged to marry or perhaps even more than encouraged, forced into something, had her father not died, but that is all speculation. Uh, And in fact, Pepin did die in 639 or 640, not long after King Dagobert passed away.
1: When Gertrude's father died, her mother, who was also eventually canonized, worked with the Bishop of St. amand to build a double abbey on the family's land at Neville. One was for women and one was for men. The Bishop actually went to Ida with the request that she do this, eventually convincing her to take on the project.
0: Yeah, some texts will indicate that the building of the two abbeys was actually a solution to a problem for Ida. And that problem being how to provide for a daughter who was sworn to her religion and her religion only with marriage out of the question.
1: Worried as well that without the protection of Pepin, Gertrude would be kidnapped or snatched away by men with horrible ideas Ida also cut her daughter's hair short as a tonsure, both as a sign of her religious devotion and to diminish her beauty and basically make her less appealing to would-be abductors.
0: And for Gertrude's part, she was totally into her new haircut. (laughs) Like, you could... You could see where someone who, you know, particularly in that era when all women have long hair for the most part, and they suddenly have it all shorn off, there's like a whole identity thing. And it, No, she was very delighted. And in her Vita, the reaction is described this way, quote, Blessed Gertrude gave thanks to God and rejoiced that for Christ's sake, she deserved to take this crown on her head in this brief life, which would be a perceptual crown of integrity in body and soul.
1: When the abbey was completed, Gertrude officially took the veil as a bride of Christ and was appointed the first abbess at Neville. Ida also lived there as a nun for the rest of her life, and she served uh, basically ever as a matriarch and a voice of guidance for the younger nuns.
0: And this move on the part of mother and daughter is sometimes characterized as politically problematic and opposed by Frankish royalty at the time. Uh, Remember that Pepin... Uh, Ida's husband and Gertrude's father had been mayor of the royal palace. Their family was very tightly intertwined with the crown. So, of course, for them to be like, we don't want any more of this. We're going to go be religious now would have been a little bit odd. Uh, but there are also some theories that it actually may not have been entirely unusual for women of a family to devote themselves to religion at the loss of a patriarch. So there are some conflicting views from historians on whether or not this was a completely normal move or not.
1: One of the things that's almost always mentioned in accounts of Gertrude is her willingness to welcome pilgrims and travelers to the Abbey, regardless of their religious affiliations or lack thereof. Two of the most historically well-known visitors were a pair of Irish brothers, Follian and Alton. The pair were traveling from Rome, Italy, to Peron, France, to the site where their brother was laid to rest after his death. And while the
0: brothers were staying at Nivelle, Gertrude and her mother decided to gift them a tract of land called Foss, and a monastery was built there. And Follion, and I, I want to be clear, too, that I saw this written several different ways. One was F-O-L-L-I-A-N, like a, a normal Folian pronunciation, and the other was F-O-I-L-L-A-N, which would be mo- more like Foyon. So either way, that's who we're talking about. Uh, but he stayed at Nivelle. At the abbeys there. And Alton took charge of the new monastery that had been built at Fuss. And both brothers were also eventually canonized, which you could almost say about every single person that comes up in this story.
1: Did they ever make it to where their brother was laid to rest? I don't know. I never found anything about it. <laughs> it seems like... I was they like, just... did
0: they just give up? Or like, did they, oh, in fact, here. go there and then they were looping back? It was unclear.
1: Okay. So... Uh, In a moment, we will talk about a shift in Gertrude's life that was precipitated by a loss. But before we do, we're going to take a quick break and have a word from one of our awesome sponsors.
0: So back to our story. Uh, In 652, Ida died and she left a large amount of land. Their family, remember, was quite wealthy. And that was used to build additional religious institutions, such as churches and monasteries. It really formed the foundation in a lot of ways of Nivelle. And Ida also left a great deal of work in Gertrude's hands. Ida had been very instrumental in running affairs at the Abbey and providing guidance. And once she was gone, Gertrude actually ended up turning over much of that work, as well as uh, a good bit of her own administrative duties to several trusted nuns, because she was now the sole leader of the Abbey. Other duties were parted out to some of the monks with the intent that better management and delegation of all of these responsibilities would mean that Gertrude could devote more time to study of the scripture.
1: Gertrude often fasted as a form of religious observance, so much that she eventually grew very weak. And she also abstained from sleep, which really didn't help her failing health. Eventually, she became debilitated enough from these practices that she wasn't able to fulfill her duties as abbess anymore, and she resigned. After consulting with her most trusted monks and nuns, Gertrude made the decision that her niece, Wolfitrude, should uh, take over position as abbess, and that change was made in December of 658. And
0: this was actually a problem for the crown. Wilfrid's father and Gertrude's brother, uh, Grimold, had been embroiled in a power battle when Pepin died in an effort to gain the post his father had once occupied. And he also attempted a coup uh, in terms of, like, who was actually running things. Uh, so there was bad blood and it remained. And an effort was made to actually oust Wilfetrude since her family had sort of such a bad uh, shadow cast over it by all of this political intrigue. But it really speaks to the power of Gertrude that she was able to go ahead and push through Wilfetrude as her successor and assert that this should be the person that was running the Abbey. And the younger woman uh, did remain in her post, according to Gertrude's biography, quote, Through the Grace of God. She actually held that post for about 10 years.
1: On March 16th of 659, Gertrude tasked one of the monks at the Abbey to go to the monastery at Foss with a grave question. She wanted to know if Altan had received any indication from God about when she would die. He replied, today is 16 March. Tomorrow, during solemn mass, the maid servant of God and Virgin of Christ, Gertrude, will go forth from her body and say this to her, let her neither fear nor be alarmed concerning her death. But may she pass on joyously because blessed Bishop Patrick with the chosen angels of God and with great glory are prepared to receive her.
0: And Gertrude received the news exactly as Alton directed, with joy. She was so excited that she stayed up the entire night praying with the nuns of the abbey, and in the morning she received communion. She thanked God for calling her to his kingdom, and she died exactly at the time that he had predicted
1: She was 33 when she died, which some attribute great significance to, because that's the same age that Christ died, according to Scripture. Gertrude was honored as a saint upon her death, although she has never been canonized officially. Her her feast day is March 17th, which was the day of her death.
0: Yeah, she's recognized as a saint, even though, uh, you know, as was the case in medieval times, a lot of people were recognized as saints and they didn't really go through that official canonization process. But she is considered a saint. Uh, and after her passing, devotion to St. Gertrude spread very, very quickly. And the abbess who succeeded Will Fertrude at Nivelle, Agnes, eventually built a church in honor of Gertrude there.
1: There are many miracles described in writings about the period of time shortly after St. Gertrude's death. And we're going to mention just two of them to give you kind of a sense of the sorts of acts that are attributed to her.
0: Yeah, there are many, many. Uh, there are some great ones involving sea monsters uh, <laughs> and people invoking her name and the sea monsters being like, all right, we're out and leaving. But those are not the two that we're talking about. Uh, the first year we're going to talk about, the first one that we're going to talk about happened ten years after Gertrude's death. And at that point, a fire broke out at the monastery at Nivelle. And it happened very suddenly and without warning. And as everyone was fleeing, one of the monks, uh, claimed to have seen a vision of Saint Gertrude appearing over the fire and using her veil to fan the flames away from the building. And it was eventually put out much more easily, I think, than anyone expected.
1: One of the other miracles associated with St. Gertrude after her death involves a young girl who had been ill for some time and eventually lost her vision. And according to this story, St. Gertrude appeared to the sick child in a dream and instructed her to have faith and to go to the bed where Gertrude had died and to lie in it. When the sick child made her way to Nivelles and did so, she was helped in her frail state into the bed by the nuns there And her sight was restored and her illness disappeared.
0: Yeah, it's one of those stories that allegedly at that point, her parents had been seeking far and wide for any kind of treatment that was going to help her. And that was when she had her vision. Uh 30 years after St. Gertrude's death, we're now getting out of the miracle zone, heads up, uh, her older sister, Bega, who had already married, she had had a family of her own, but then she became a widow. And at that point, she devoted her life to religion as well. And so uh, this family is rife with saints. I mentioned a little while ago that almost anyone we name is now a saint. That is the truth in this family for sure. Pepin, Ida and Bega are all recognized as saints as well as Gertrude.
1: One of the things that has made St. Gertrude's life something of a tug-of-war among historians is the fact that her biography, Vita Sanctae Gertrudis, has been called into question as a historical document. We don't know who wrote it, other than the fact that he was a monk, but it has been accepted by many to have been a contemporary account of her life and an important historical document of the Merovingians and early Carolingian line in medieval Europe. This is a line that Gertrude was part of. In 1866, however, one historian a 19th century Charlemagne scholar named Heinrich Bonnell challenged the authenticity of this biography. He did, and this was a big
0: thing to proclaim. Uh, he believed that it has, was written several hundred years after the life of St. Gertrude in the 11th century. And this assertion really had the potential to upend everything that had previously been thought about the early roots of the Carolingian Empire.
1: While there were plenty of counter-arguments at the time that he actually questioned the the veracity of this document, the end to the debate came when a copy of the text, called the Montpelier Manuscript, was dated to the 8th century. So the discovery of that text kind of put a lid on some of this debate. While it isn't quite as cool as if a 7th century copy was found, one that would have been written at the time she was actually living, it certainly blasted apart the theory that it didn't come around until the 11th century. There have also been late 7th century documents that reference the Gertrude biography, which further indicate that it was written by a contemporary of hers and not someone much later.
0: And while there is ongoing debate about some of the particulars and the details of the Veda, uh, arguments about the date of its origin really have settled down for the most part.
1: Even so, this is still a tenuous history as it relates to European bloodlines. There's a wonderful line in the book, Late Merovingian France, History and Hagiography, 640-720, to 720, in which the authors wrote, quote, Using hagiographical sources to determine who the members of an early medieval, medieval family were and how they were related to each other can be a very hazardous enterprise. <laughs> yeah, you c- can't
0: take it at face value, which gets tricky when you're in a time period where we don't have a lot of contemporary accounts. Uh, they kind of make the case of like, no, you need to find supporting things that also corroborate it that are individual and separate from it. And the reasoning for this is that because it was a point where in time where the church and politics were completely intertwined, it was important and vital even for royal lines to be able to include family members with religious significance. And Gertrude and her family are relatives of Charlemagne through her sister Bega's children. So the stakes here are incredibly high historically.
1: So if you were wondering why a 19th century Charlemagne scholar even cared, that's why. (laughs) Yeah, he cared a whole lot. Today, you can actually take a 15-kilometer St. Gertrude of Nivelle tour if you ever find yourself visiting her hometown on the Sunday following St. Michael's Day. It's a very highly attended event, and pilgrims walk alongside Gertrude's relics. Yeah, this is no,
0: like, small affair. There is a set schedule. There is a really very carefully set order to the processional, including horses that are ridden by young boys that are dressed as angels. And this is apparently a much coveted role for the children of Nivelle. Uh, I was looking at the website for this event, and the following note appears. This was in the translated version. "Quote: The waiting list for these children is so long that it is advisable to register before the birth. (laughs) It's kind of like it reminded me of kids getting into the best preschool. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking.
1: So we will talk a little bit about uh, all the things that Gertrude is the patron saint of, and then we'll wrap it up with some listener mail. But before we do, we're going to take one more break for a brief word from a sponsor.
0: Hey, so remember when we mentioned at the top of the episode that St. Gertrude is the patron saint of cats? Yep. Uh, well, according to one Catholic saint's info page, she's also the patron saint of more than two dozen causes. She is said to protect, among others, travelers, hospitals, gardeners, the poor, widows, innkeepers, prisoners, hospitals, the mentally ill. And she protects against the fear of
1: mice and rats. Some of these come with explanations of sorts. Gertrude was known to take in travelers and pilgrims, uh, like the Irish brothers who became part of her religious family. And apparently, small mice sculptures made or covered in precious metals, have been left at shrines to Gertrude. The mice represent souls in purgatory. and many depictions of her, she even has a little mouse on her staff.
0: Yeah, there are some where you'll also see little mice, or very cute versions of rats, kind of around the hems of her garments, kind of scurrying up to her. Uh, And the cat thing, though, seems to have come about in the late 20th century, like in the 1980s, although its precise origin is largely one of speculation. And it could simply be that someone made the association between cats and mice, since she is featured with mice. Uh, it could also be that she was conflated with another folk figure that was associated with cats at the time. One reference I saw mentioned, uh, I don't remember the figure's name, but it was a woman who was said to ride a cat. And it could also just be that someone liked Gertrude of Nivelle, and they liked cats, and they started referring to her as the patron saint of felines, and it caught on. We don't know. That is all
1: speculative. It's not how it works, though.
0: But it's in the 1980s that she started being... Um, um, reported in this way. It's like the patron saint of cats.
1: So that's the scoop on St. Gertrude of Nivelle who, as it was written, quote, lived in the flesh here among mortals and acted as a regent over the men and women who lived as Christ's servants under her authority. She never forgot her perpetual interior life, nor relaxed her standards of rectitude, nor her serious manner, nor her religious discipline, even for a moment.
0: This is one of those things where, uh when I was doing the research, what I really wished for and just doesn't seem to exist anywhere is much about her personality. Like, we know she was kind to Pilgrim. She was obviously very kind and very devoted. But, like, uh, you know, I like to know if people like jokes. Are they silly? Are they... You don't get a lot of that in her, in her no. biography. It's a pretty basic, like, here's what happened, here's when she was called the god, here's when the abbey was built. She was very joyous about all of her religious stuff, but there has to have been more to the story than that. Um, maybe not. I it's pretty brief, really. It shows up in a lot of, uh, several of the books that I reference in th- that'll come up in show notes are uh, analysis books but they all include that official saint's biography in them. So it's not that long. You can read it. You'll see what I mean. Do you also have some listener mail? I do. I have a lot. This is kind of like a listener mail smorgasbord because uh, we've gotten a lot of really good postcards lately. Some I will read, some I will not. Um, some I will just talk about. And then I have a, a super special thank you for one of my favorite listener mails of all time. Uh, so first I will mention we got a beautiful postcard from Justin, uh, which is a Gustav Klimt piece. And it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, Justin, some of your writing got a little bit obscured in the mail, uh, the ink looks like it's smeared a bit, so I won't try to muddle through it, but it's absolutely beautiful, and thank you. I love Klimt, so I appreciate it. Uh, the next one we got is from our listeners Allison and Zoe. And it says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. My best friend and I are backpacking through Asia for two months. We started listening to the podcast together. I finished the whole archive while traveling. Thank you for being our companions on this adventure. While well, in Cambodia, we heard about the Khmer Rouge. And I know it's a sad and depressing topic, but if you could do a show on them, it would help us understand uh, where we were and the culture. Thanks, Allison and Zoe. And they sent us a beautiful, beautiful picture from Indonesia uh, of Mount Rinjani, which I may or may not be mispronouncing. But it's lovely. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking us on your travels, I wish I were actually with you. Uh, probably my favorite postcard of the month goes to this next one. It is from our listener Annie, and she says, "Hi, ladies. The women in my family and I spent Mother's Day at the De Young uh, Museum in San Francisco, visiting the Oscar de la Renta exhibit." Uh, Holly especially would have literally swooned over some of these pieces. Lovely, lovely things, just as he meant them to be. Anyway, I've been listening for a few years now and just wanted to say thanks for making my commutes infinitely more pleasant. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Annie. This postcard is gorgeous. You're right. I would have swooned. I'm swooning just looking at it and it even got damaged in the mail and has a big smear on it. I still think it's gorgeous. Uh, (laughs) Our last postcard is, uh... From a number of people, but mostly Grace. And it says, and it's written kind of small, but I want to read it because it's very cool. She says, hello, Holly and Tracy. I love the podcast. and I've been listening while going through my dear grandmother's house. I found all sorts of treasures, including a stack of her father's vintage postcards, which I thought you might enjoy. My grandmother was born in 1929 in the Kellogg Sanitarium at Battle Creek, Michigan. Previous podcast subject. Uh, then there's a little blur that the postal markings obscured. Uh and she says, this part, postcard is courtesy of Jesse B. Huggett, Alita Smith, and me, Grace. And it is a vintage postcard of women uh, water skiing in the pyramid. I'm holding it up so Tracy can see it. What? It's really cool. It's a beautiful postcard. So thank wow. you, thank you, thank you, Grace. I, that's like the kind of thing that I would be selfish and find it and be like, no, I'm never mailing this. But she put it right in the mail.
1: Yeah, it's uh you could not see my face while you were reading because you were reading, but when she got to the part about being born in uh in the Battle Creek Sanitarium, like my eyes got really yeah. big. <laughs> and my last listener mail uh is actually
0: a super thank you. So everybody that listens to the podcast knows I sew. And I some of the I don't know if I've ever talked about it, but sometimes I like to design my own fabric cuz I uh, just like to. And so I got this awesome order from Spoonflower recently. That's a custom fabric printing service. And with the, my order of fabric was a beautiful note from one of their employees who listens to the podcast. So it is a not standard way that people could reach out to us, but it was absolutely sweet and beautiful. And it made the whole day just fantastic. In addition to getting cool fabric, I also got a beautiful letter from Amanda. So thank you so much, Amanda, because it made my day. So that's the scoop. Uh, that's if you would awesome. like to write to us, I know it was awesome. I literally, I am Tracy who's like, Oh my gosh. This <laughs> Spoonflower employee he just
1: wrote me a note. It's amazing. Well, and I think you and I both have um like weird random encounters. Some, I don't mean weird in a bad way at all, but we'll be out Unexpected. shopping yeah. or doing something, and and a person will kind of go, "Hi, are are you on a podcast?" <laughs> uh, yeah, it is fun. It's always delightful. Ninety nine percent of the time, it's delightful. Like if I'm at the laundromat folding my underwear, maybe not just then. <laughs> Well,
0: I've had it happen a couple times during races, like during a half marathon, when I look horrifying and really like a train wreck, someone will sidle up next to me and be like, I love the podcast. I'm like, thanks. Don't laugh at me. (laughs)
1: Last week, I went to the farmer's market and I was wearing, I don't remember what I was wearing. I was definitely wearing the kind of outfit that if we were like Hollywood famous people instead of just like podcasters, like the kind of outfit that winds up in the celebrity tabloid magazine about look how horrible <laughs> this person looks when they're not on set. Um, and I was at the farmer's market and somebody uh, from a mushroom farm that was selling, uh, you know, wonderful, delicious mushrooms was like, I don't recognize your face, but I recognize your voice. And I was like, I wish I had put any care into what I had on right now. <laughs> I wish I had packaged the voice with with more
0: mascara, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you to everybody that says hi. It's always a delight, even when I look totally gross. I still feel bad. I mentioned it on Facebook. There was a girl that talked to me in one of the security lines in Disneyland after the half. hmm And the security line had taken forever, and it was a little bit frantic at that point. And so I kind of said hi to her, and I had just had a bad run. I was crabby. And I felt bad because I meant to loop back and talk to her more friendly. And, like, we completely – I lost her in the crowd. So I hope she didn't walk away going, man, Holly Fry is crabby. (laughs) Uh If you would like to write to us about whether or not I'm crabby or if you've had an encounter with us out in the world, you can do that at history Podcast at houseofworks.com. We're also at Facebook.com slash history, on Twitter at History, at Pinterest.com slash history, at com. We're on Instagram at History, where I will try to put pictures of the postcards that I mentioned today Uh And you can also go to our parent site, which is howstuffworks.com. You can research almost anything your heart desires. We have a plethora of content for you to explore. So almost anything you put in, you're going to get something interesting back. You can also visit me and Tracy at MissedInHistory.com, where we have the show notes for every episode since we have been on the show together, as well as an archive of every episode of all time and occasional other goodies like an awesome FAQ Tracy put together about all of the things people frequently
1: ask us. That includes our, our mailing address, which rather than trying to rattle that off, if you Google Stuff You Missed in History class, contact you will find all the ways to contact us, including our mailing address.
0: Yeah, so if you want to send us groovy postcards, that is how to find the address. Uh, so we encourage you, come and visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.